either we're going to have climate chaos or potentially we could have some economic chaos. We could have both. Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast, where this week we've got a very special guest, Stephen Devlin from the New Economics Foundation, who's going to be talking to me about the carbon bubble and the growing momentum around the divestment movement. The challenge for world leaders, reduce global warming by two degrees. But when economic crisis hits, is the environment still a priority? I can't think of a better way to spend Earth Day than in one of our nation's greatest national treasures, the Everglades. Since President Obama took office, summer sea ice in the Arctic has mostly disappeared. This is not some impossible problem that we cannot solve. We can solve it. Now fully underway, seawater is 30% more acidic than just four decades ago in the creek. We can solve it in a way that doesn't disrupt our economy, but enhances our economy. understand that they're facing a carbon bubble that makes the housing bubble look small. I like that, a carbon bubble that makes the housing bubble uh, look small. You also wrote an article. So this week, we're joined by a super special Scottish guest, Stephen Devlin, uh, who's an environmental economist here at NEF, here to talk to us about divestment. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Christy. So when we hear people talking about climate change, we hear about this magic two degree warming figure. What does a world that's two degrees warmer look like? And are we on course to stop that? Well, the interesting thing about that two degree limit is it's often pushed around in the media and places as if that's some sort of safe limit. But the truth is that even two degrees of warming uh, would be expected to deliver some pretty horrible impacts across the globe. Huge natural disasters, changes in rain, droughts, famines, um, lots of really horrible, tragic things. Unfortunately, that's, that's already committed to and that's likely to happen. And worse, we're definitely not on course to preventing two degrees Celsius. And in order to achieve that, we would have to uh, do something pretty remarkable, which is basically to leave a very large proportion of the fossil fuels that we already know about in the ground. And at the moment, that does not look like it's going to happen. So who actually owns all of these fossil fuels? And and given this kind of pretty disaster scenario that you've just outlined for us, do you think these people are having these kind of chats around the boardroom table? Well, the reserves we have are, are all owned... Mostly by companies. Some of them are state-owned companies. Some of them are these these huge global uh, corporations like Shell and Exxon. Basically, the biggest companies in the world. Some of them bigger than countries. Basically, have all the control over these reserves. And I think, you know, you ask about the boardroom. I think that's pretty interesting. I suspect what's actually happening in the boardroom is, you know, they're certainly not discussing about how they can keep their reserves in the ground, but they probably are getting pretty scared about um, the prospect of being forced to leave them in the ground. And of course, because their share prices and their valuation in the stock market depends on how the sort of governments and and publics perceive them, they're going to be very worried in in their boardrooms, I think, about what's going to happen in terms of regulation in the future. So this seems like a bit of a mismatch to me. You've got climate scientists um, and governments actually agreeing that this stuff has to stay in the ground. But then you've got companies and all their investors um, who kind of are getting their value from the intention to burn it in the future. Is How, how do you kind of square that circle? Yeah, well, exactly. There, There is a, a definite conflict there. Um, 
the value of these companies is based on their expectation that they're going to burn a basically climate destroying amount of fossil fuels. And as you say, that's completely in contradiction to what politicians are telling us that they they want to do, which is to prevent climate change. So the result of that is that you have these huge valuations of fossil fuel companies, which don't reflect the fact that if we're serious about climate change, then they can't actually realise all of that value. So what we have is this classic case of a stock market bubble. You know, uh, economic history is littered with these kind of events where stock markets are sort of incorrectly assessing the value of an asset. And once that becomes apparent, it quickly bursts. This value just disappears and the people that have invested in them, financial institutions, pensions and things like that, are left in the lurch. They, their savings have been reduced to nothing um, and sort of financial and economic chaos ensues. So yes, there is definitely a conflict. We need to resolve it one way or another. Either we're going to have climate chaos or potentially we could have some economic chaos. We could have both. Ideally, we should prevent both of those outcomes and I think we can. Okay, well, climate change is one of those topics that always makes me a little bit terrified, uh, yeah. a little bit terrified at the halfway point. So um, how uh, do you think that we can deal with these problems, Stephen? So as I was saying, there's these two things. We've got this sort of dilemma between climate chaos and, and potential financial chaos. As a, as a society and our governments that represent that society, we have to make very clear as soon as possible that we seriously intend to tell fossil fuel companies that their business model cannot be sustained for very much longer. Not that we are going to reduce them to nothing overnight, but that there is a clear limit to their operations in future. And once that is very clear, then that allows us to create a sort of controlled transition away from using fossil fuels to power our whole economy and away from basing a lot of our financial value in pensions and, and other financial instruments on the value embodied in fossil fuel companies. So what we need is a very clear signal from society and from governments that we're going to make this transition and then we need to put into place the policies that are going to make that happen now. So this is the this is the magic word divestment. Can you just give us a bit more detail about how this actually works? Divestment basically means that an institution takes some of its investments out of a particular investment good. So in this case, what the divestment movement is asking for is that public institutions like universities, churches, other institutions that have a social goal should not be using the money that they hold on behalf of, of different groups in society to profit from this unsustainable business model that's embodied in, in, in fossil fuel companies. So what they're saying is kind of two things. One is that there's, there's a moral basis for this. You know, it's just not okay for public institutions that have social goals to be contributing to the destruction of society. And the second thing they're saying is they're recognising, you know, what I've just described about this carbon bubble and that there's a serious financial risk associated with having these investments in the first place. They're also saying, well, we think you're actually being quite reckless with, with the way you're investing our money. And we prefer you took that that money out okay so, so I, I guess um yeah you, you got churches public institutions that i could see the moral argument working with but obviously they're in, they're invested in things to make money do you think they're going to really care about a kind of moral argument 
Yes, I, I, I think they are going to care about moral argument. And, you know, indeed, the evidence has been that they do care. There's an increasing number of institutions that have divested. Today, we saw the School of Oriental and African Studies has committed to divesting. Uh, the first London university to divest. Um, a couple of others in the UK have divested, a number in the US. So clearly institutions are responding to this argument, which is which is primarily moral. Of course, they have a financial imperative to look after the funds that, that they've been entrusted with. But the evidence shows that actually uh, divesting from fossil fuels doesn't come with any financial penalty anyway. And of course, part of the argument is that these are financially risky investments in the first place. So... You know, they are responding in a moral sense, but also I think it's a pragmatic case. And lots of the institutions have been clear about that as well. I think you've already alluded to this, but it would be a great day for, for the divestment uh, campaign. But the danger is that everyone feels bad. You know, they realise that they're kind of destroying the planet and, and they all divest at the same time. How do you think that this can be achieved in a kind of controlled way? This kind of comes to the point of what the divestment movement is actually trying to achieve. And it's a really common misunderstanding that, you know, even if, all of the public institutions suddenly decided they're going to sell their shares in BP and Shell and, and everything else. That's probably not going to bring about the demise of the fossil fuel industry. The point is not actually to financially bankrupt these industries. Once you sell those shares, someone else is going to buy them. You know, the campaign has been very honest about that fact. So what they're trying to achieve is not the financial ruin of the companies. It's to sort of morally bankrupt them. It's to bring about not just a financial divestment from public institutions, but this kind of cultural divestment from, you know, just accepting that fossil fuels are an okay part of our our of our lives as we go forward. So it's really a sort of political and social statement and sort of forcing governments and decision makers to listen up and and pay attention finally. We're obviously in the midst of of an election. So final question has to be, are any of the parties advocating uh, the kind of things that divestment campaign is doing? The the demands of of the campaign are very much towards uh, particular institutions and not so much towards political parties. But you have seen, you know, high profile politicians like Ed Davey giving credence to the divestment campaign and saying, actually, this is something we need to pay attention to. But in terms of what parties are actually committing to in their manifestos, I think it's it's safe to say that climate change has not been a really key issue in this in this campaign. And actually, most of the main parties are, are not really pledging to majorly step up their action on climate change at all. Obviously, with the exception of the Green Party, who have always maintained that we need very urgent and significant action on on the issue. Okay, well, um, thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time out to chat to us today, leading the charge on the cultural divestment uh, of the fossil fuel industry in the UK. Thank you very much. No problem. My pleasure. Music for the Weekly Economics Podcast is provided by Poddington Bear. So thank you to everyone who's helped us so far by leaving a review. Uh, We're now new and noteworthy on iTunes. Uh, But if you haven't had a chance to yet, please give us a hand by going to iTunes now and telling them how much you love us. We'll be back at the same time next week. That was great. Oh, it makes me feel sad. Why don't they do anything about it? (laughs)